This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Much like our pal Doc, on principle, we try to spend as little time around the LAPD as possible. And yet, here we are, unswerving and unavoidable, careening with a scene into the lightless dark that pulses siren red and siren blue. All this strange alternate cop history and cop politics, cop dynasties, cop heroes and evildoers, saintly cops and psycho cops, cops too stupid to live and cops too smart for their own good. Insulated by secret loyalties and codes of silence from the world they'd all been given to control. On the night of May 7th, 1966, in the Los Angeles neighborhood of Watts, which less than a year before had exploded into riots following the violent arrest of black motorist Marquette Fry by the California Highway Patrol, 25-year-old black man Leonard Deadweiler was speeding through several red lights, his wife in labor in the passenger seat next to him. He tied a white handkerchief to the antenna of his car to signal an emergency, and he thought that the police cars chasing him through the red lights were an emergency escort. When Deadweiler eventually stopped the car, LAPD officer Gerald Bova approached Deadweiler's driver's side window with his gun drawn and shot him point blank. The LAPD said the gun went off because Deadweiler's car lurched forward suddenly. Deadweiler's widow said that this was a lie and that the car never moved and that the officer shot Deadweiler for no apparent reason. And of course, the LAPD was cleared of all responsibility and the DA closed the case. One month later, a young author by the name of Thomas Pinchon penned an essay called A Journey into the Mind of Watts. In it, he wrote, in the back of everybody's head, of course, is the same question. Will there be a repeat of last August's riot? An even more interesting question is, why is everybody worrying about another riot? Haven't things in Watts improved any since the last one? A lot of white, po white folks are wondering. Unhappily, the answer is no. The neighborhood may be seething with social workers, data collectors, VISTA volunteers, and other assorted members of the humanitarian establishment, all of whose intentions are purest in the world. But somehow, nothing much has changed. There are still the poor, the defeated, the criminal, the desperate, all hanging in there with what must seem a terrible vitality. The killing of Leonard Deadweiler has once again brought it all into sharp focus, brought back longstanding pain, reminded everybody of how often, how very often, the cop does approach you with his revolver ready so that nothing he does with it can then really be accidental of how, especially at night, everything can suddenly reduce to a matter of reflexes, your life trembling in the crook of a cop's finger because it is dark, and Watts, and the history of this place and these times makes it impossible for the cop to come on any different or for you to hate him any less. Both of you are caught in something neither of you wants, and yet night after night, with casualties or without, 
these traditional scenes continue to be played out all over the south central part of this city. And now, more than 50 years later, I am recording this episode in Los Angeles in the days following another murder of another black man by more police and after the justified protests that followed that death and after the wholly unjustified and violent police response to those protests. And this episode is a week late because frankly, I didn't really feel like doing an episode of Increment Vice concerning a scene with a shaky pistol pointing member of the LAP fucking D and neither did my guest. I just wanted to shut up for once and just listen. And in that silence, I kept thinking of that line from Pinchon's essay and how it's still pertinent today and how it seems to tragically define everyone in his novel, Inherent Vice, from hippie detective Doc Sportello to hippie-hating Mad Dog and civil rights-violating cop Bigfoot Bjornsson, from gang member Tariq Khalil to real estate big shot Mickey Wolfman. And that line is, both of you are caught in something neither of you wants. And so here we are, a week later, still feeling as if we're teetering above the gaping maw of whatever sawtooth mouth is going to chew us all up next before spitting us into the next hell mouth in the never-ending fuckmare that is 2020. And sitting with me tonight, her eyes growing wider and wider and wider, either in the horror existential or simply because I've yet to shut up, is one of my absolute favorite film people, an excellent writer over at Film School Rejects slash One Perfect Shot, whose work on everything from Uncut Gems to David Fincher to the heroism of Columbo leaves me constantly entertained and edified. Horror movie junkie, fan of old Hollywood, defender of Greece too, and certainly the only human being I know whose marrow deep obsession with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood rivals my own, Anna Goddamn Swanson, thanks for coming on. Travis, thank you for having me. Um, thank you for that lovely introduction. That was very nice of you. Well, I you're, had to- You're just I, too kind. I had to pull you back because we, we started heavy. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, to, we did, but I think, you know, rightfully, we gotta, we gotta talk about all of this because it's all on the table, I think. I mean, just the, the, the I mean, and, you know, I am aware that, like, in the grand scheme of everything, us talking about a movie scene is not like going to change the world, but like, of course the fate <laughs> will allow this scene to be this week, you know, like it just, yeah. it's, I, well, when I, when I, <laughs> when you told me that I was going to do this scene, I did not expect that it would be a discussion happening in this world, you know, let's put it that way. But. We planned this out at least six, more than six months ago. Uh, this is yeah more than six months ago seven or eight months ago and we thought of this was going to be oh well, we're going to do a fun comedy scene we're going to do a japan we're going to do japonica's uh hell ride into the night with doc and company mm -hmm. and we're like this is good this is good this is going to be thematically rich it's going to be funny uh marty shorts going full marty short uh and we're all we are going to talk about all of that but um i think we both slowly as 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 the because we were so busy thinking about so many other things as the recording day loomed i think we both were sitting there going oh fuck so this is an episode in which a shaky nervous gun-toting uh member of the los angeles police department pulls over our crew and 
just well, I didn't want to I didn't want to I didn't want to talk about fucking yeah no I mean when you texted me asking I just wanted to listen I didn't want to like say whatever I have to say about inherent vice for like the 50th time uh when it felt like once again yeah, when you texted me asking if we could delay it I like breathed a full sigh of relief because I was like yeah like this is not the time for me to really talk I think I mean I still think that's true but I think you know especially last week I just was totally in that feeling of like I need to just shut up as yeah. much as I can <laughs> boy uh what a laugh riot this is this has been already because i was yeah. expecting this was, i was like oh this is this is gonna be one of our funnier episodes yeah shooting the shit we'll talk about once upon a time in hollywood but uh instead there's this specter and what but what's the thing is you know and i think this is part of the part of the privilege that everyone is kind of examining right now or should be examining and should be looking at more deeply the thing is is nothing new has happened mm-hmm. between when you and I decided to do this episode together like eight months ago and today, uh, you know, something that's come up on more than one occasion in the last few months is how more and more inherent, inherent vice feels like a movie of right now. And I think that the instinct is to look at something like that, to look at the novel, to look at Pinchon's writing and to look at the film and however much the film might be more of a love story, to, to be able to still look at this and go, oh, wow, how prophetic. How prophetic that this, this tale of 1970, written in 2009, filmed in 2014, how, how prophetic it is and kind of capturing right now. But it's, that's the thing is, it's not prophetic. And what's disheartening is that it feels that way because what were problems in 1970 are still problems right now. What Thomas Pinchon wrote in 1965 about how, quote, the cop does not approach you with his revolver ready, or the cop, excuse me, the cop does approach you with his revolver ready so that nothing he does with it can then really be accidental. That was true in 1965 and it's true in 2020. But either mm-hmm. way, the connection to the darkness of the world of inherent vice it, I think it just feels more real now than it ever did before in the intervening six years since its release. The Golden Fang is Trump Tower. The president is this buffoonish mix of Adrian Brusha and Rudy Blatnoid. And the real monsters are the Crocker Finways, sitting in their suits in their wood-paneled rooms with their pricey drinks, unable to recognize the humanity of any of us who are paying rent. All of that mm-hmm. is a very, very wordy, typically overly wordy Travis way of saying that that as awkward as we felt last week and as, as much as we're like, no, nah, no, nah, this scene has this added context and this deeper meaning now that it didn't have before. Well, that's kind of bullshit because that meaning was already always there because there, that history of police sanctioned murder has been there for decades and decades and decades. It just wasn't fresh on the tip of our tongues when we decided to do this episode. Mm-hmm. And that too is kind of disheartening and I'm not, and, and boy, this is, this is getting dark quick. Uh, but I think that that's something to be reckoned with. And I think, but I also think that's something, that's a reason why it, this over the last few weeks, especially since March, uh, when 2020 officially marked its descent into hell, this film has felt more and more meaningful because everything that's been ripping up towards the surface this year, it's all in this movie. It's, mm-hmm. it, was, it was all there. Like Pinchon, he put everything in there. It's just, it feels more weighty now because 
we're living through it right now. Like we're going through our 1968 right now. We're going yeah. through our 68, 69 and slide into 1970. And instead of doing it over the course of two years, it feels like we're experiencing it in like two months. Yeah. I also think, um, and uh, you know, on other episodes, you've talked about how much the film can sway from comedy to tragedy and how watching it is always an experience of figuring out, well, do I find this funny? Do I find this sad? What is this movie more of? And I think that um, rewatching it today, which is the first time I've seen it since last August, like I was struck by how much like things that I found joke that I found to be jokes before now, like just hit in a different way. All the sort of comments about like Bigfoot as like the civil rights violator. I, I definitely did have an experience of being like, okay, like, you know, I kind of laughed at those jokes before and I was like well you know I get it like that's true like absolutely he is but watching it now it's it's I don't know it it it, it feels different and I think that it's you know it's definitely important for me to like examine the incredible privilege that goes into even just like being able to find those jokes funny without really inquiring like what more there is to it um and why it's taken until now for me to like really think in a more complex way about those um but yeah you what, here we what, are. what did you text me this morning you're like oh boy watching a cop pretend to be a hippie in a commercial that yeah. that's it that's hitting me right now the like second scene when he sees uh bigfoot playing the like hippie selling channel view estates i was like oh yes a cop pretending to be a hippie on tv that absolutely does not remind me of you know all the copaganda videos of police praying with protesters an hour before oh, oh. pepper spraying them like yeah cops don't pretend to be nice on tv <laughs> it, like really i i'd never view that scene in that way and now it's just clear as day but and not uh, not to say that oh well hey you know all of these things serve to let us look at different layer, look at the different layers of inherent vice. I, but since no. we are keeping it to vice, I, I, I don't think you're wrong though, in then in maybe recognizing the more loathsome aspects of his character because I think to keep it vice centric for two seconds, just so we don't have to think about the daily horror that we're experiencing. I think it's very easy for people to look at someone like Bigfoot and see him as this almost Shakespearean comic figure, this goofball in which Brolin is blowing bananas and wistfully eating marijuana and shaking his head sadly about dentists on trampolines, which is still a great line. Uh, but I, I, I do think that with these more jaundiced sets of eyes that, we, that, that, we're, that we're having right now, it does allow us to actually recognize in this piece of art what a nuanced character someone like Bigfoot is and what a what a deeply loathsome character he can mm -hmm. be. And so that's something that's come up on the episode a lot or on the show a lot as well is how much how much of a coward Bigfoot is in that there is tragedy to him. There is there is there is pathos to him. There is empathy. To, you can have empathy for him that he is someone who lost a partner whom he loves. And yet there is a spinelessness to him in that he, you know, and this is 
this is a big argument about what's about what's happening in the world today. There is a spinelessness to him and that he remains committed to the very organization that stole all of his humanity by killing Mm -hmm. his partner. And there is an unwillingness on his part to step away from that organization to the point that he even has to literally outsource his vengeance to, to doc. And I don't know if you can hear right now, but there is currently an LAPD helicopter flying over the building as we speak. Which is I nice. That's hear, that's but... that's nice. That's that's what you need yeah. right now. It's a nice. <laughs> they're helping us out with a nice little just, uh, scary dramatic counterpoint. Thanks, mm-hmm. LAPD. Appreciate it. My tax dollars at work. Um, but yeah, he is literally a man who's had to outsource his own pain and vengeance and justice to a to a PI because he can't he can't break that that blue line and he can't turn against the organization that has literally destroyed his life and left him. Uh, with a therapy bill that what does his wife say could choke a fucking horse it's not a good line um chastity bjornson fan club i'm in it yeah but yeah there is a darkness to him and it sucks that you know it's easier to recognize now that i think a lot of us are checking our privilege and going oh well holy shit yeah jesus defund yes defund the police yeah absolutely absolutely and Mm -hmm. and chanting it like we've been chanting it for 20 years which we haven't yeah. uh, but it does br- it does i think open up if you're going to do something as silly as well think i'm uh, as think about inherent vice way too much as which is what we're doing tonight then it does at least crack open this character and show what a, what a far deeper and nuanced character he is than i think he gets credit for mm-hmm and that's me desperately, desperately, desperately trying to 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 keep this vice related for at least two seconds. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I, I mean, I think sort of like the way that we can talk about this film in the context of what's happening now isn't necessarily like, oh, inherent vice predicted all of this. But I think just that like when you are more engaged with the world around you, uh, I think that like the interpretations you can pull from any given well-made piece of art just become much more uh, complex and sometimes like scary in ways that aren't fun to deal with. But I think that that's also like very necessary. Exactly. And yeah, and it's like I said, it's not, it's not even that it's prophetic. It's just nothing has changed since 1970. Nothing has changed. And unfortunately it's taken, I think up till just about right now, for someone like myself to then realize, oh wow, no, this isn't this wildly prophetic tale of 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 Trumpian uh, Trumpian America. It's this Trumpian America is America, mm. and yeah. that that the nothing has changed. It's just we're maybe being a little bit more open and honest about what we are and who we are. Uh, although you get a pass, of course, because you're in Canada. Yeah, we're not great. Canada, long list of things we need to apologize for, slash, like, just, ugh, bad. That, not a great country. We we love to, like, look at the states and be like, well, we're not that bad, but, like, Canada's committed genocide. We are complicit here. And no good detective movies, all the same. Yeah. I'm sorry. Silent Partner. It's a great film, yeah, but it's not, it's not a detective film. Um, but you guys, yeah, you guys actually, do get Silent Partner. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I'll give Canada that. Silent partner in healthcare. There we go. Um, I was going to say, actually, I wrote down one of the lines um, from towards the end of the film. May we trust this blessed ship is bound for some better shore, risen and redeemed, where the American fate mercifully failed to transpire. 
And I think that's exactly what you're saying. You know, this is not a coincidence. I think everything happening now is the American fate. It's one of my favorite lines in the film. And I will admit, the more I watch this film, and obviously I have a problem and I watch this film a lot, uh, more than even- I don't I think admit. that's a problem. Well, uh, you know, I don't know. The DSM-5 would, would, would argue with you on that. But uh, the more I watch this film this year, the more that, and the longer, the deeper we get into 2020, the more that line hurts me more than any other in that film where mm-hmm. the American fate mercifully failed to transpire. Yeah. Because so much of 2020 has felt like, not that things were good before 2020. I, I, I am aware, even my privileged ass is aware, things were not good. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, it, it, things were just not good. But that something about this year does feel like a reckoning mm-hmm. and a confrontation with... If we, if we want to keep the nautical metaphors going, the rising tide of everything wrong with this country mm-hmm. that has always been there, that has always, always been there, and is simply, it, the, the tide has become too high to for even the most privileged to ignore. And that line, where the American fate mercifully f- failed to transpire, it hurts so much more with every successive viewing. And again, I do mm-hmm. promise everybody listening, this will get fun eventually. We are going to talk about Martin Short, I swear to God. But right now, I, I, I keep thinking of that line and just, and the, the inevitability of that line. And that's, that's ultimately, that's, that's, that's what Inherent Vice is about, whether you want that to be a love story, whether or not you want the, the thing that you're in love with to be, uh, an ex-old or you want it to be the country that you live in, inherent vice, the term, the title, the meaning of the film, the meaning of the story, the meaning of Shasta Fay, the meaning of Doc and Shasta and of America is something whose intrinsic makeup destroys itself. And it's so, so hard with every passing week that you turn on the news or open fucking Twitter uh, and, you, and you look around, you're like, this is, that's, that's what I'm seeing, eggs breaking chocolate mm-hmm. melting, glass shattering, ex-old ladies. It's about something born with an, with an inherent flaw and that that flaw spreads and corrodes and leaves you, it leaves you with a year like, a lot like 2020. Yeah. With you and I looking very exhausted and sad as we talk about a scene that we thought we were going to have a lot of chuckles about. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think, well, I mean you know, like you said, I think this is the the breaking point where things can't really be ignored. And, you know, maybe it's a little naive or hopeful, but like there is that part of me that kind of does want to hold on to that idea of, you know, this is the breaking point because it's something has to change and like something can actually be affected here that will, I don't know, like, you know, we're seeing it. Minneapolis has the plan to defund the police. Hopefully that is seen through and hopefully more changes are implemented and you know people keep protesting and people who can't protest keep donating i am trying to hold on to hope and yeah. to, to the hope that there is hope to to quote uh good old sean connery and the cinematic classic the rock um but I, I i really am i am trying very much to be the doc at the end of the film instead of the mm. book where 
because we got, I got I got to try to keep this on Vice. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like pulling us away from Vice. <laughs> no, no, we have to talk about this. It's important yeah. to talk about this, and I think that was the entire was the entire point of uh, of, of Pinchon's essay, and it was the point of the book, and it's the point of the movie that we are talking about, which is the shit. The more things change, the more they stay the same, mm-hmm. and it, the longer they stay the same the more that inherent vice, that, that, that dry rot that eats from the inside out, the more it, it's able to take hold. And mm-hmm. so it is important to talk about these things just as much as it is important just to a nerd like me to talk about inherent vice. And I, as I said, I am trying to hang on to hope and I am hoping, I am hoping, I'm trying to be like Doc at the end of the film where at least there is a light in the fog to give me something to kind of smile at and think mm-hmm. about as opposed to Doc in the book, who's cruising those boulevards, boulevards of regret in the fog all by himself, just hoping, hoping it'll be different this time. Yeah. But with absolutely no evidence whatsoever that, that anything would be different. At least Doc in the movie has got that cool little light in his rear view, and he's got a great, great soul pop song playing in the background with his girl on his arm. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to be that guy. I am yeah. trying to be hopeful. But there's a there's a lot to be worried about right now, and it makes me think makes me think of something. Uh, when I was in college, uh, my mentor was an English professor slash writer named Arthur Saltzman. He's since passed away, but he's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant fiction writer, uh, renowned Don DeLillo scholar, and he'd probably be super mad at me for doing a Thomas Pinchon related podcast and not uh, DeLillo. Sorry, Dr. Saltzman. <laughs> but I remember him once, he and I were once talking about the 60s, capital S, and how he had lived through it. And he's like, you know what? You know what? I hate 60s nostalgia. I hate people listening to mamas and the papas and thinking about how good it could have been and the rise, you know, what Hunter Thompson writes about in Fear and Loathing when he's like, you know, the, 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 the peak of that wave and you could just, with the right kind of eyes, you could see the energy building. And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, I was there. I was growing up. I remember the 60s. And you know what I remember? I remember being fucking terrified. And that that's always stuck with me when watching any kind of TV show or movie that somehow just posits that everything was idyllic from like 1960 to 1968. And then things got a little wacky towards the end there, but that's not the case at all. And as, mm-hmm. as he's, and, and as previous vice guests has said, when we talk about uh, Walter Shaw, when we talk about the sixties, we're not even really talking about the sixties. We're talking about 1968, 1969. That's the sixties. That's, that's what, the, and, and as Dr. Saltzman said, no, it wasn't exciting. It wasn't cool. It wasn't fun. It was fucking terrifying. And I identify so much with that when thinking of right now. You know, mm. I don't know if in 30 years from now, if there is 30 years from now, and people are going to look back going, 2020, man, that's when we took to the streets and we took it all back. And, and, and then, you know, it's when change happened. And and sitting right now, I'm like, no, no, it is fucking terrifying. It's, it's absolutely, there's, there's nothing about this that is exciting or enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And I just, that's, that's resonated with me so much more deeply over the past few weeks as I've been watching, as I'm always watching Vice and thinking about Vice. It's like, no, no, this, they're, all of these characters, they're just fucking terrified. 
Mm-hmm. And Sean wrote in 65 in that essay, they're just caught in something that, that none of them want, but none of them know how to get out of. And if that is not, if that is not the perfect description of this year, then I don't know what it is. None of us want to be here. Protesters, cops, tr- fuck, I don't think Trump wants to be here anymore. But we are all just caught in the cycle from which we can't escape. And boy, the, 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 the encroaching sadness spreading across your face as I go on this rant. <laughs> no, it's just, I mean, you're right. You're absolutely that right. Crushed, that crushed velour suit of his. How about that? It's purple. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> um, That's all I got. Yes. I'm, I'm done. I'm sad. No, you're right. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, talk about we tell ourselves stories in order to live. <laughs> well, now, you, oh boy, no, we're not doing yeah. this. I'm get, no, nope, 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 nope. Well, this has been great. I, I've really enjoyed having you on tonight. Um, uh, I want to tell everybody where they can find your stuff. And uh, how about that Cliff Booth and Brandy? Don't you just love them? Aren't they great? Oh boy. Oh, anyway, yeah. oh, we have fun. Before, yeah. we, before we get any deeper, before, okay, so. Before we talk anymore about watching a hair of ice through the, through the lens of right fucking now and how different it is from having watched it in the past, let's, let's go to that, to the before time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and let's, what, what has been your relationship with this film from the first time you saw it onward? Back in the before okay. time. Yes. Um, so the first time I saw this film was December 26th, 2014. Well, you got the date. Uh, of course I do. Came out on Christmas. So I saw it the next day. Um, and I, I, I think I did love it, but I didn't know how to explain why I did. Mm. So I wasn't sure that I did. You know, I mean, I was, I was 20 when it came out. So I was like into movies, but not like the way I am now where I'm somewhat better at like articulating the reasons. And I think especially at that time, because I was, you know, in like, first year film school type shit where you know I was like terrified to be like oh I love this movie that other people don't like um so when you know I saw sort of people reacting to inherent vice being like oh it's not good it's not as good as like um there will be blood or magnolia or whatever and I was like oh I I kind of liked it you know <laughs> um so I do think that I, I I really liked it I think I was very confused by it which I still am but um I I think that it it's such an emotional experience that I think that was what I was responding to. Um, and then I did, I went back and saw it like, I think three or four times total in theaters. So I definitely did like return to it. I was like, I just want to, I think, be in this world. I think at that time I just like wanted to experience this world. I wanted to watch the film. I wanted to, you know, see everything it's doing even if I didn't really understand what was happening at all. Um, and I, I do think I pretty much from the get-go embraced that, like, I wasn't going to make sense of this. So I'm just going to enjoy the ride. Do you, well, that's, that's perfect. And I think that's, I think that even those of us who've loved it, I think that that, that's a perfect encapsulation of how we felt walking out. I remember I've spoken to Kim Morgan about this a lot, both on the show and off, and because we both tried to figure out why. Why this movie? Like, yeah, we like detective shit. Yeah, we like 70s stuff. Yeah, it's PTA, but like there's there's a million movies like that. There's a, there's well, there's, there's not a million PTA movies, but there's a mm-hmm. lot of PTA movies. There's a million detective movies. 
there's a million hazy, lazy, sunny LA mysteries about, you know, where the mystery is the detective and the detective is the mystery. And what about this, this kind of odd, oblique, strangely organized film? Why this one? And, you know, a big crux of our, our conversations, her and I about this film has been, you know, I, I still don't quite, I'm still not a thousand percent sure why this one is the one, like why mm-hmm. this is the movie I take with me. And I mean, Jesus, I'm clearly working out my issues on all of you by doing this, this podcast to figure that out. But, you know, she's, she said, you know, I don't know why I love it. I just know that I love it. And impo- more importantly, I don't know if I want to know mm. exactly why, why I don't know if that's, that's a mystery that needs to be unraveled because it's almost as if you, if you totally understand why you're in love with this thing, well, what's the point of being in love with it? Like, part of the mystery is the allure. And I know there's a lot of reasons why I love this, but I, I, still, I still think that is the most perfect answer. And I feel like you almost said exactly the same thing, which is, you know, I knew I loved it. I was not quite sure why or what about it. It's just, I don't know. It's, you're a dog person. Yeah. You just like dogs. You see a dog, mm-hmm. you just want to go, oh, I'll be my friend and fall to the mm-hmm. ground and, 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 and wrestle with it like, like Cliff and Brandy. Um, by the way, I apologize, everybody. There's going to be a lot of Cliff and Brandy asides, I think. You shouldn't studded, apologize for that. Throughout the end. Well, that's true. Um, but these people are paying good money for inherent vice juice, not, uh, not uh, once upon a time in Hollywood. <laughs> but uh, there's just, that's, that's exactly it. The, the, I don't know, and I, and I felt the same way walking out. I knew that I love, there's specific things, yes, that I love. Oh, cool. That, the opening sequence with Can, that's amazing. Uh, all the Neil Young stuff. Oh, that's so great. Running in the rain with Shasta. That's so great. Any day, closing out with any day now and, and smiling at the camera. How great. And yet the whole overarching lunar pull of this, this film's gravity well, sucking me in. I just know that it happened. I, I don't know if I could say why it happened. I just know that it happened. And I think that that is one of the reasons why the, the people who don't like this film don't like it because they can't explain the reactions this film provokes in them. They just know that it provokes reaction. And they don't like it. Mm-hmm. Conversely, there are people like us who I think are on the other side of the fence where it's like, yeah, I don't know why it made me love it. I just know that I loved it. It's a scruffy dog. It came up to me. It smiled. I was sold. I'm done. I'm in. I don't need to ask yeah. myself why I like this dog. I just like this dog. And that's, 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 that's the best way I know to explain why mm-hmm. inherent vice grabs someone when it does grab them. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it's, I mean, and, you know, even now, like, I know I'm doing a podcast where I'm supposed to put into words how I feel about it, but I think that it's something <laughs> that kind of can't be put into words, you know, because it's not, it's not a movie that, you know, I love because I can give you X, Y, Z example of what it does in a perfect way. I, I, I love this movie because when I watch it, I never want it to end, you know, like the... That's exactly it. The, what, how many times I saw in the theaters, I think three or four, like just every time we got to that last scene, I just remember sitting in the movie theater being like, no, go back. Like, <laughs> let me do this again. Yeah. You know, it just, it's, it's a two and a half hour movie and it goes by like that. It does. And you're so right because I, I go through the same thing. Every time I get to the scene in which Brolin, which Bigfoot kicks down Doc's door, which gosh, it's a lot less funny now. 
uh, when Roland kicks down um, Doc's door to, and it eats his weed, I always get to that scene and I get sad because I'm like, oh, this is the second to last. It's over now. Mm-hmm. It, it does. It, here we go. It, it lacks. The one thing in here I kind of lacks is that, you know, I think a film that you and I feel is similar in a lot of ways to this one is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And weirdly, as much as we love that film, I feel like we are both ready for that movie to be over when it's over mm-hmm. because it has such a resoundingly over-the-top cathartic explosion of an ending that you're kind of just spent and like, oh, whew, okay. Oh, oh, I'm gonna go hug somebody and go out and pet my dog and, you know, I'm good. With Inherent Vice, because it is so much more muted and it does lack that righteous vengeance, I'm going to blight the Manson family from the face of the earth type ending. Spoiler alert, I guess. I think there is something about that where, yeah, it's like, no, I'm, I'm not ready to go. We're, we're still mm-hmm. humming along. Let's, let's get on the PCH in the fog and let's just drive around. Let's, see, let's put on KCH and see, or KHJ and see what, see what happens. Yeah. And the, that adds to the magic of the movie, I think, in a way, by not having that overwhelmingly big ending you're mm-hmm. never really ready to slide into the credits. And it's, I guess it's kind of appropriate that you end the movie then with that sense of melancholy that, that pervades the rest of the film because you're sad, like every other character in this film, you're sad that something's over. And in our mm-hmm. case, it's the movie itself. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's, um, I mean, I think even just, you know, watching this in the theater when you get to that final scene of Doc with the like light behind him and it's sort of like flickering ahead it's very much like sitting in a theater and having this sort of like projector behind you and like I don't know it's this weird surreal thing and the way he sort of looks at the camera there it's yeah um I also think like however many times I've seen this movie, I can't tell you what scenes happen in which order. <laughs> so like when it gets to Bigfoot kicking down the door, I'm like, oh, oh yeah, okay, this does happen now. This is the last, the second last scene. But like, I don't know what scene happens before. Like, you know, it's it's so, it's it's just a little bit all over the place where I'm like, oh, okay, well, yeah, the, this ha- this scene happens now. Great, you know? Well, it's it's kind of like something about this film. And, and, and as someone who has seen this officially, too many times with the exception of yeah like i can tell you i can tell you that that big that bigfoot scene is the second to last i would probably be hard pressed to give you the exact order of of sequences in this film it's there's something about it it's like trying to remember a dream and you Mm, you ever try to describe oh "Oh, my god i had the weirdest dream that you turned into a lizard last night i'm gonna lay it out for you and then as you start and then martin short was there but wait 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 no wait I feel like trying to tell someone what happens in this movie turns you into that person that can't tell a joke. And you're constantly like, oh wait, no, 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 I forgot to tell you. Oh, and the girl in the bar, she does this thing with the straw. Hang on, I forgot to tell you about that part. Oh, oh, oh. And then and then the, the mafioso guy came in. Oh, but for, for, for okay, I'm gonna start over. I'm gonna tell, okay, start from the top, the joke. And something about this film, it's so hard to, to get your hands in it that way. It is, it's like trying to recall a dream and the more you you try to pinpoint certain things, that just like in, in recalling a dream, they, the more they kind of squirrel away into the fog and into the ether, which is very appropriate because the film is somehow, it, it turns us all into Doc. It turns us into this, this guy who, who is stoned, um, I was going to say half of the time, stoned all of the time, and who is constantly trying to grab at these little bits of errata and these facts that are flowing around him 
and he's only able to grab these little snags of paper off of them. You know, someone tells him about a Mickey Wolfman uh, land development deal with a Spanish name, and the only note he can make is something Spanish, which is not going to help him the next day when he remembers to look at his notes. Yeah. Uh, but the, it's such an incredible, and this is, a, again, this is why people like Thomas Pinchon and Paul Thomas Anderson or Thomas Pinchon and Paul Thomas Anderson and the rest of us are just the rest of us because there is a, a genius, there are genius level intellects at work in designing how this plot is laid out because it generates in the viewer, just like, you know, we're feeling like Doc with the light over our shoulder at the end of the movie, it generates in the viewer that same sense that Doc has of just being, no pun intended, punch drunk and stumbling around and having no idea what any of this means, only getting a sense that there is a backbone to this meaning. It's just one that we're never going to fully grasp at any given time. At any given moment, we'll get like, we'll understand maybe 30% of what's happening at the moment. And then that other 70%, we're never going to grab that. And it's just constantly trying to Rubik's Cube these different 30% together, which I, I, now, I now totally sound like an Inherent Vice character. So mission accomplished, PTA. You're not wrong. Thomas Pinchon, mission accomplished. Yeah. Now, as, the, as we slide uh, ever closer to the present, and you rewatched the film today for the first time since August. Mm-hmm. It's been a while. I watched this film this week for the first time since last week. I, I, I did. Mean, I, I wanted to sickness. sort of watch it's it with semi fresh eyes before the <laughs> podcast, you know? Oh, come on. Anyway, anyway, how many, you say that, but then okay. come on. How many but times I, you watch I will once say I normally do an annual watch on Easter, but that was thwarted this year because of the world. Boy, two questions. Whoa, 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 whoa. Apologies, everyone listening. We're going to have to take a break. We're, we're, we're hitting the brakes, and you're going to have to listen to, to, to me interrogate Anna for a minute. Why, why Easter? Why is this an Easter movie? Um, so it's, so the, well, Last year, we did, I think, a very perfect Easter double feature of RoboCop and Inherent Vice. Sure. Okay. Because uh, it's just, you know, RoboCop because, is a Jesus allegory. Sure. And, you know, me not knowing really anything about uh, Christianity, when I think of Christian imagery, I think of the Coy Harlingen Last Supper shot. Oh, boy. <laughs> So I was like, that has to do with Jesus. Let's watch Inherent Vice for Easter. And it's never a bad idea to watch Inherent Vice. Okay, fair enough. So, New Beverly Cinema, if you're listening, double feature programming right there. Easter Sunday, yeah. RoboCop, Inherent Vice. Boy. I mean, it's it's a great pairing, you know? Because, like, RoboCop gets you all fired up. And then Inherent Vice, you can kind of just, like, sit there and relax and watch this amazing film unfold. And you and also, like, I think Inherent Vice, we did it sort of while we were having dinner, uh, my friends and I. So it was, like, we could kind of, like, be eating and maybe having little conversations here and there and, like, check in with the film at times. But, like, it's just a good movie to have on. Oh, so you're talking during the movie. Well, I'm not, but, you know, I'm not yelling at other people who are, right? No, like it, is, it is a good, it's a, it's a good have it on movie. That's, yeah. I, and I think a lot of guests have agreed. That's, it's a good go-to, uh, it's, it's 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. I'm going to throw it on. Why not? Exactly. Although there's, there's no earthly reason why you couldn't have watched it this last Easter. I mean, it would, it, it could have, it could have cheered you yeah, up. Yeah, we should have. I'm glad you admit this. Moving on, moving on. You watched it again today with fresh mm-hmm. eyes. Do you, the things that made you uncomfortable now, 
do you feel like they're right? It's, do you think it's right to be made uncomfortable by them now? Do you think that was always the point? Or do you feel like it's a, and I don't mean this as a pejorative, mm-hmm. but is, is it just a hypersensitivity because of everything that is exploding around us in the real world? Or do you mm. feel like, oh, no, I should never, I get that they mean it as a joke, but I shouldn't laugh when sort of Liege references the hippie-hating mad dog himself with all the little twinkle, uh, shit twinkle in his eye that says civil rights violations. Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't think it's an oversensitivity. And I don't know if, like, necessarily being uncomfortable is the right way to phrase that, because I do think that, like, you know, an extension of my privilege is that I get to watch the vast majority of films with a high degree of comfort. Um, I think just maybe like an an awareness of how some things in the film extend beyond the film in ways that I haven't been confronted with, mm-hmm. you know, on a regular basis. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it makes me like uncomfortable watching the film. I don't think it like lessens anything about it and I don't think it makes them not jokes I just think that it uh I don't know it was hard to watch and not like understand um that that the film is like obviously you know period piece set in the past but kind of like you were saying before that like so little has actually changed um and also just like watching it in the context of like not necessarily what happens in the film, but what was my understanding of the historical time period um, and the the time period that I associate with the film, even if those like historical points aren't like plot points uh, and how much we haven't really changed since then, you know? So I don't know. It's, I don't think it's like a worse experience for maybe making me a little bit uncomfortable. I think it's probably actually a richer experience doing that yeah and i was i mean look i'm gonna i'm gonna say this movie's a miracle you know Mm -hmm. any chance i get but isn't that kind of a miracle of a work of art like this which is yeah it can be a movie that if it's like 12 30 at night and you're like oh i'm gonna be up a while why not put i'm gonna put vice on i want i want vice in the background i miss my friends i want to i want to hear doc i want to hear sorely talking to me chilling me out in the middle of the night Mm -hmm. um you can watch it for that and it's fine like that. It's great like that. It's funny like that. You can get super high and watch the film and space out and just be like, oh, these are pretty colors. I like the purple. I like Martin mm-hmm. Short's suit. I like it. Um, you can watch it and just be like, yeah, I want to get high with my friends, either real or the friends in the film. Or you can watch it because you're, you're sad, because you, 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 miss, uh, you miss your guy or your old lady, and you just you want to hurt. You want to hurt in a really... Like listening to Neil Neil Young record, you want to hurt in this really beautiful way, uh, or it could be just because you love this fucking movie and it's so perfect and gorgeous and beautiful and sad and funny. Also, I think something, and it's not like it makes it worth it that these horrible things happen, obviously, but there is something about the magic of this movie is that it be it because of what it is about. And how it is about this country and all of us in it, or very near to it, it becomes more meaningful mm-hmm. watching it right now. It becomes more necessarily 
painful right now. It does make you squirm and kind of self-interrogate a little bit when you are like, oh shit, I used to laugh at that. I used to laugh at that scene or I used to laugh at that joke. And it's still a joke, but it leaves you where I was asking you just now. I'm like, am I like, like characters in a, like in an episode of Seinfeld are like, are we supposed to be talking about this? Am I allowed to laugh at this? Should I be laughing about this? Am I an asshole yeah. for laughing about this? And, you know, not that all of those things were specifically put in there, especially explicitly for that. Like PTA knew this was all going to happen. Or maybe Pinchon probably actually did because he is, hmm. you know, he's Thomas Pinchon. But that's, again, part of the magic of something like this is how it can have any meaning you need it to have. And, and, or conversely, sometimes it will force meaning upon you that is painful that you don't want to deal with, that you didn't turn to it for, that you are just trying to watch this movie because you promised your friend you'd do his goddamn podcast and now you're stuck having to watch it on the day of and oh my God, now it's making me feel so miserable uh, because of all the, the truths that is making me confront. But again, that's, that's, that's what makes this special. That's what makes this movie mm-hmm. magic is it has all of that and so much more in this wacky story about a stone detective and a stone detective who's missing his girl and trying to put one family back together. And there's just something that, Hey, Hey, I love boogie nights and I love Magnolia and I love there'll be blood. And I love the master. I love punch drunk. I love Sydney. I love, I love Phantom Thread. I don't think that those films as wonderful as they are, I don't think that they have that. Mm-hmm. And I know I always say, well, I'm not going to figure out why I love the movie, but that that's part of it is, is mm-hmm. this, this movie has whatever that is. This movie has that. And yeah. that's fucking magic as, as dispiriting and as painful as it can be on a day like today. Mm-hmm. That's special. That's worth talking about. That's worth watching and worth holding on to, even if it's uncomfortable, I think. Yeah. I also think, you know, um, I mean, pretty much every time I watch an hair advice, I come away with something new, whether it's exactly. like a detail that I notice for the first time or just like an emotional experience that I have with it. You know, the difference between watching it after going to L.A. or not or, you know, all of these things like it, it does feed into um, how like a shit changing viewing experience and like a shifting understanding of the film and all of this. So I don't think it's like at all a negative thing. I think that's, you know, something that's that always happens with the film is that I come away being like, Oh, I hadn't thought of this in that way before. I hadn't noticed that, or I hadn't um, had some sort of experience with it. And I did this time. And um, yeah, it's always sort of changing. And that's, and this is something I hit on so many times. I'm sure people are going to start putting in their earplugs when I say this, (laughs) but that is, I think, you know, I'm not doing anything special by doing this show. Everyone is doing something special for me by doing this show because while every once in a while I still, I will, cause I've, again, I've seen this so many times. I will stumble upon, Oh, this is a new little thing. This is a little detail. I didn't notice. That's interesting. What allows me to see the film anymore with really fresh eyes is by doing this and having mm-hmm. these conversations with these amazing guests that I don't deserve coming on the show to talk about this. Like for instance, just that little beat that you mentioned in the final scene of the film. And you're like, you know, we're kind of, like Doc in that last scene, we have this bright white pillar of light coming from over our shoulders and bouncing back into our eyes and, you know, how he's breaking the fourth wall and looking right at us as the same thing is happening to both Doc and ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
that's just a magic little moment that the next time that the new Beverly plays this, so I'm able to see it flickering at 24 frames per second and 35 millimeter with that light haloing my head, I'm going to think, oh, this is exactly what I was talking about. That mm -hmm. one. And it allows, and that's why I think it's important to do something as nerdy as this and to talk about film like this and to write about film like this because seeing the film through different eyes allows you to see the film differently. Mm -hmm. And if I can get super pretentious, it allows you to see the world differently because you're able to see how other people are seeing it beyond your own set of privileged spectacles. And again, I think that circles back to this thing that we keep touching on about how different it is to watch the film today because events of the day are forcing us to watch this film with a different set of eyes other than our own a set of eyes that might not think it's so funny to have a shaky uh gun pointing cop pull over a carload of of nervous kids and one one old old uh old uh, dentist and aging detective but that 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 for some people that that is not funny for someone uh for someone like deadweiler that's that's the end of your life mm -hmm. and and I think that that's why it is important to dig into stories like this and dig into film like this with other people is because it can open you up and it can open the film up and it can open up the way you view the world and the way you view films outside of your own crusty, unbreaking privilege. And in true inherent vice fashion, increment vice fashion rather, I have no idea where I'm going with that. But yeah. that's... But hey, it sounded good in my head right before I started saying it. So there you go. That, that's my thoughts on all that and on watching this film yeah. now, today, during a time like today. And hey, if you haven't, anyone listening, this is a good movie to sit back and relax with right now. If you're having a hard time, and you probably are, you're probably stressed out, you're probably doing that thing that Anna and I both did at the, right before we started recording and we were catching up. And you're doing that thing with, hey, 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 how you doing? You doing all right? <sighs> okay, yeah. yeah. And sit back with this movie. It's going to make you a little uncomfortable at times, clearly. But it'll, it'll make you happy. It'll chill you out. It's a nice place. Yeah. It's a nice world to be in. Well, it does feel like visiting old friends. It does. And even if the world itself is scary, as scary as ours is right now, and it is because nothing changes, your friends are in there with, in there, mm -hmm. and they're, 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 they're waiting for you in there. And as, as, as cheesy as that sounds, it's, it's like that great line from, uh, from Almost Famous. When you go, you go visit the record store and you can see all your old friends anytime you want. Mm -hmm. And that is another reason I keep returning to this film. Even if I have to grudgingly admit that one of those old friends is a buzz, cup, buzz cut cop with a bevy of civil rights violations under his belt. And maybe, maybe he's not my friend now. Mm -hmm. I will say something else I noticed or that I thought about for the first time uh, watching it today um, was in one of the episodes you had pointed out like when Shasta leaves in the opening scene the watch your toes line and then she says something to herself like I'm, going. I'm leaving or I'm going or something going. like that I mean I thought about how just you know I mean her first line being um, he thinks he's hallucinating yeah this kind of idea that Shasta is almost narrating her own story in this. And like, oh. there's something kind of sad to me about Doc having sort of liege as this maybe real, but probably not 
but still a companion narrating his life and Shasta doing that herself? That had never occurred to me. And see, this, this is exactly what I was talking about because now I'm going to go home. I'm going to be all mushy after this episode and I'm going to go home and I'm going to throw on inherent vice after talking about it for however many hours. And that's the, oh, I, I am going to revel in that and grab onto that thread and follow it all the way to the end of the movie to see if I can make something of it because mm-hmm. you're exactly, exactly right that that is. And I kind of wonder a little bit, you know, it's, 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 it's one thing that was left out of the film that I kind of wish hadn't been, but I understand you only have so much time to work with is, is in the book. Doc is obsessed with the films of John Garfield, the actor from, uh, oh my God, Postman Always Rings Twice. And there's a little bit of that kind of, you know, a lot of people uh, in the book compare Doc to John Garfield. Like if, if this film had somehow been made in 1944, John Garfield would have played Doc. He's been perfect for it. There is a little bit of, I think, that self-mythologizing in the film where if Sorlige isn't real, it's almost like Doc needs her to be, you know, because he's kind of living in his own version of the big sleep. He needs his narrator to kind of like, you know, Doc, you don't remember that day, uh, that day in the rain, or the, the, you don't remember the Ouija board, do you, Doc? And I feel like we all kind of do that to some degree, or at least the, the overweening narcissists among us, like myself, that we do kind of have that inner Jiminy Cricket talking to us. And it had never occurred to me that Shasta would have had the same. Thinks he's hallucinating. Yeah. Wow. Bless your heart. Yeah, we could stop this whole episode now. I got what I needed. I'll, 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 I'm going to take that with me, that and your thing on the end. I'm good. I'm good. We don't have to get into the, the cop stuff. We don't have to get into the scene itself. We're good. All right, We're that's good. a night. Again, that's a night. Anyone wants to hang out uh, and stick around? We're going to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for the next two hours. All right? Is that cool with everybody? Is that cool? All right, cool. On that note, let's actually watch the scene at hand. And we're going to dig into it. And we're going to have fun. We're going to have fun. Damn it. Martin Short, he's funny. He's funny. Yeah. That's something. That's something. Oh, boy. Okay, we're diving in. Yeah, maybe we should just do a bit more of that for the road? Yes. Yeah, you owe it. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. Come on. What's in that bag you're stuffing under Doc's seat? Pay no attention to that bag. Only make everybody paranoid. Though he may have rescued Japonica from a life of dark and unspecified hippie horror, apparently restoration to the bosom of her family had been enough to really drive her around the bend. Oh, fuck! Fuck it! Fuck! I can't! Okay, we are so fucked! I got... Are you the great beast? No, no, that's a... You know you're driving without your headlights, ma'am? But I, I can see in the dark. Perhaps you shouldn't be driving, then. I'm, I'm going to need to see all your IDs, please. And what is this all about, sir? Any gathering of three or more civilians is now considered a possible cult. What? It's Charlie Manson again? Criteria, cri- criteria includes reference to the Book of Revelation, males with shoulder-length hair or longer, and endangerment through an attentive driving, all of which you all have been exhibiting. Oh, I don't think so. Man, listen. This is a Mercedes. Okay. It's only painted one color. Y'all hang tight. That should count for something. That's a good point. Okay. 
I'm actually gonna have a heart attack. I'm actually, my heart is racing like a little, little, little. Huh? Oh, what? Yes, sir. I'm gonna hand these in, Mr. Sportello, and as long as there aren't any wants or warrants I don't know about, I won't hear any more about this. Well, thank you, officer. You have a good night. Thank you, sir. Drive safely. So this whole sequence that, that we watched today, this is kind of the big finale in our Martin Short trilogy of Increment Vice episodes. And it's interesting to me how these three last episodes, how we've kind of how we divvied up. The, the entirety of the Dr. Rudy Blatnoid sequence. These three episodes do kind of present a unified short story, a three act short, a short story. Short story. Oh, everybody, did you hear that? Did you see what she did just now? Oh, wow. I'm sorry. Jesus Christ. I'm pulling my color right now. Like there's slowly like one of those vaudeville hooks coming across the screen, pulling Anna away. And I'm just, I'm going to take over for the rest of the episode. I am sorry to everyone at home that had this. So, you know, and I had a good head of steam going. I was going somewhere pretentious. Ugh, all right. So anyway, okay. So uh, Dr. Rudy Blatnoid scenes, I do think kind of formed this, this three act story of an abused generation yeah how funny is that that's not funny is it Anna? i think it's so funny now uh, but they do tell the story of an abused generation in, in in kind of three acts that we split up across these last three episodes in act one we see the reveal of the golden fang uh having grown out of quite literally a utopic hippie moment you know doc and shasta's run in the rain and we see in 1970 the absurd banality of the Golden Fang's evil and hypocrisy in that first act as it appears to at least be partly run by these drug-abusing, sex-crazed, tax-cheat dentists in what is kind of a rather goofily elegant metaphor for the powerful and the powerless in American society. And then we switch gears after Blatnoid leaves Doc alone in his office and we find ourselves in act two in which we see uh, with growing horror, this older generation's exploitation and subjugation of the younger generation through drugs, depression, the Vietnam War and capitalism, this never ending cycle that renders the hippie culture eternally buying into, dropping out of, cleaning up from, and then buying into again. And then finally, we come here to act three in which it's, no wonder this group of hippies with Blatnoid looming over their shoulders careens head on into a collision with clueless authorities, in this case, the LAPD. But as it's presented here, both of those groups seem clueless, the hippies and the cops, the people that are stuck in this, this cycle, which is not me saying that to defend the police, but only rather to say that like the hippies, like everyone else, in Pinchon's and Vice's America, this has been a, yes, a short story, a Martin short story of people caught in a cycle that no one wants, but everyone involved, except for someone at the top, like Blatnoid, are powerless to stop. And there's something about that that is, again, 
There's a reason why Thomas Pinchon and PTA are Thomas Pinchon and PTA and the rest of us are the rest of us because they can embed this bizarre and the first time you see you're like, oh, this is just a wild ass comic interlude. They're able to insert this little short film, shut up, Anna, into this overarching two and a half hour movie. And this little short film contains everything that is the plot to this film. This, this cycle of degradation and subjugation beneath the boots of an uncaring older generation that has formed this golden fang that just keeps biting into us and, and pushing us out into the world, making us buy things we don't need, buy things that make us sick, and then trying to clean us up for having bought those things. Again, I'm rambling, but I feel that that is just what a masterstroke it is to have included this short story in this larger film. That's my speech. I'll make your jokes. Make your jokes, Anna. Make your. No, point. I don't have. To, that, that was my joke. I'm done. <laughs> All right, but yeah, I, this is the the final act of our short trilogy, and it it uh, and I and I think it it's right that it descends into such absolute and total chaos. The energy in this sequence is kind of unlike anything else in the film. There's really, you know, maybe that's because the rest of the film the rest of the film is very much a pot film. With a little bit and of this heroin. is a coke scene. This, this is, we are doing rails and we are super jittery. We're grinding our teeth. Our noses are running. And this is, this is, yeah, this is our coke. This is our coke scene. And, but it's, I think it's also fitting because, and again, we're going to get real pretentious here. Uh, because the center of something like this can't hold what, what this younger generation is being put through. And again, I think that with Japonica kind of as the center or as the metaphor for, for this, this younger generation and Rudy Blatnoid as, as the older generation, as the, the, the Crocker Fenway generation constantly digging into and exploiting this younger generation, it can only end with this kind of outsized off the rails dissolution. And, you know, maybe I'm reaching, but no, I, I feel like that that's for as much as it's easy the first time you watch this movie just to go, oh, that was that was funny when they did the that was funny when they did the funny stuff and his pants fell down. Uh, but I do think that there's something larger at play. I think there's a reason why Pinchon gave so much real estate in his book and PTA did in the film to this sequence. I don't think it was just because ha ha ha. Uh, I think it's because it's 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 so thematically important and crucial to show this kind of exploitation and to give us this little short film metaphor for what the golden fang is doing to the people beneath its boot. And I think that again, you know, if we keep talking about how 2020 is 1965, 2020 is 1968, 2020 is 1970. I think it's very easy then to kind of see this, this short story God, I can't keep saying that without thinking of that pun. As also right now, where we are beneath the boot of these larger forces, and we are seeing it kind of both the cops and the hippies, and in our case, the cops and the protesters, how we we feel we are kind of locked in this cycle that someone above us is constantly spinning, and we're all trying to figure out what the way out is, and no one really, no one really knows. So we just keep buying into the cycle. Uh, yeah. Very well yeah. put. Thank you. Well, well, I'm sorry that my terrible you. pun like was in the middle of that very yeah, nice you know, I was, take on I was spinning gold there for a minute and just, just like 
like Japonica Fenway, driving us lightlessly into the dark, you you pulled us off the road and you you ruined it. When things were going well, they were going well. But I can hey. see in the dark. It's fine. <laughs> she brought it back. Did everybody catch that? Yeah. She brought it back. All right. You, I believe, yeah, you are. You chose this episode, or at the very least, when I asked you what you wanted to talk about, when you wanted to talk about Inherent Vice, you were very specific that it needed to involve Japonica Fenway. Yeah. I'm curious as to why. Uh, I like her. I think she's a really interesting character. I think for someone that's only in two scenes, I find her incredibly memorable and incredibly fascinating. Um, and just like a really funny and also deeply sad, um, representation of like the youth moment at this time in history Mm -hmm. and just this life that she's leading. Um, of just someone like caught in these cycles of, you know, running away from somewhere bad and ending up somewhere worse and then going back to that bad place. And um, I, I think, I mean, yeah, like you were saying, like this is not a major moment in the film, but it is given uh, quite a bit of attention and I think that that's so purposeful and I think it's it's very well done to sort of take this two scene character and actually put a lot into those two scenes and a lot of information on who Japonica is and um, what role she plays in this world. Exactly. And I, I love I love that you use that phrase. She's someone who runs away from someplace bad to only find herself in somewhere worse. Because it makes me think of if we were to go back to the first moment, the first Increment Vice episode of the short trilogy, I was talking to Brian and Elric from the New Beverly's Pure Cinema podcast, and Elric brought up how much Rudy Blatnoid reminds him of uh, Peter Sellers' character in Kubrick's Lolita. Yeah, absolutely. But the way you put it really hits home and that's uh, that's Claire Quilty. That's the name of the character. Just briefly for, forgot. But what you said makes me think so much of the sadness of Lolita's character, who is also someone who runs away from someplace bad and ends up someplace so much worse. And it's again, it's something that's easy to miss about Japonica because this is a genuinely and deservedly funny sequence because Martin Short is going full short the entire time and bless his heart because we are Martin Short fans or at least you better be Uh, and because Japonica is hilarious and because yeah there's the jokes about Crocker Fenway's uh, law firm was it Kruger Voorhees and Associates I love when 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 Pynchon makes a low joke not when you do it Anna Pynchon gets away with it fair I take that she, she, there is such a sadness and a generational sadness that she is imbued with as this person that gets bounced from corrupt older generation like her parents because she's understandably smoking dope and tuning out because she does, she's living in this bored, rich Orange County family of pure evil. But she gets kicked to a place like Criscylodone that her dad has a stake in where she's uh, put on even more straight jacketing, straight jacketing drugs and only to escape to the even more corrupt and drug dusted arms of someone like Rudy Blatnoid. 
And then to be caught by a middleman like Doc, which is who he is in that situation, mm-hmm. and sent back to her parents, who will then send her back to Criscylodon. And the book goes into far deeper detail than the film does about what a never-ending cycle this is for someone like her, and that this is her life, even as an adult, even as an emancipated, twenty, barely twenty adult, that this is going to be her life. As what's what's mm-hmm. Crocker? What's Crocker say at the end of the book? At the end of the film. Uh, in a father's eyes, they're always too young. Yeah. Which feels very much, oh God, this feels like the, you can feel the people in power saying the same thing about all of us right now. But mm-hmm. they're, they're, there's such a sadness to her. And yeah. so I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued that I was, I was always curious why, why Japonica for you? And yeah, no, I think she's so fascinating. Um, and I also, I, uh, a couple of years ago, um, I saw, or maybe just, not actually that long ago, maybe just over a year ago, I saw uh, Night Moves for the first time, the Arthur Penn film. Oh, so and good. Such it, well, the reason that I watched it is because uh, a buddy of mine, Josh, loves it. And one of the first things we bonded over when we became friends was how much we both love Inherent Vice. And pretty much immediately, he was like, well, you have to see Night Moves. So we're watching Fair. Night Moves, and we were sort of talking about how... Um, that film like the private detective tracking down this like 16 year old or however old she is this teenage girl who is missing slash runaway um you know we were sort of watching the movie and we talked about how i was like oh like that plot is basically the japonica fenway subplot and um the scene where i mean spoilers i guess for night moves from 1975 (laughs) um but the scene where like gene hackman takes her home and it's just immediately apparent that the home life she's going back into is not a pleasant one and josh just sort of turns to me and says like so you you get japonica home but what do you take her back to and it's like yes like josh look at you right but it's just, it's so sad and frustrating. And you just see how in a two-scene character, there is this incredible and powerful and inescapable cycle of just like, you know, someone being punished and suffering beyond their control. And, you know, I mean, even within the film, like it's it's all of that sadness is there, but there's also that comedy and it kind of makes it almost easier to overlook Maybe the first time or the first couple times you see this film, you don't really think of Japonica as this tragic figure. Um, but I think definitely, like, the more you watch it, all of that really comes out. And it's even more so, it's how reflective, how her tragedy is such a microcosmic portrait of the cycle that men like her father is putting the rest of the country through mm-hmm. and the rest of her generation through because as she is being cycled uh kicked from you know escaping from the finways to uh people like you know rudy blatnoid but and then getting basically kidnapped back and thrown in chris kylodon escaping chris kylodon going back to blatnoid going back to the finways so too is the rest of her generation at the hands of men like her father are getting so depressed, you know, the entire, the entire integrated scheme of the Golden Fang is to make sure that America is depressed by the war, keep the war in Vietnam going so Americans are depressed, using Vietnam as a pipeline to run heroin home, get those depressed hippies hooked on smack, then get them right to the point of death, 
so that they're willing to kick at a place like Chris Skylodone, which the Golden Fang also owns and gets a cut out of if you go. And then when they walk out of there clean and sober and they have nothing but rotted teeth, like twisted graves in their teeth or in their mouth, they're then forced to go to a dentist who works for the Golden Fang, who's going to put those bright big new chompers in just like Hope Harlingen. And then they go back out into the world only to get depressed again and to start using again. And it's both, I, th- I feel like Japonica is meant to be both a, a microcosm of that, but it's also, I think, a portrait of how you can't, even if you're as powerful as Crocker Fenway, you can't be a part of that kind of degradation and you can't touch that level of blackness and not have it start to infect the things you love or the things you care about and the things you mm. want to control. He brings it home and yeah. his, his own family you know, even if he cares about her and on some weird alien level, as much of a monster as he is with his 1980s savings and loan haircut, there is a part of him that does care about Japonica, even if it's a proprietary care. Mm-hmm. Even in father's eyes, they're always too young. He does want to in some way care for her. And he has also totally destroyed her, which goes yeah. again back to the title in Heron Vice. That which you are is what destroys you. The fact that her last name is Fenway, the fact that she was born a Fenway is the thing that is going to to ruin japonica mm-hmm. and, and again i know we're getting pretentious but that's that's why this movie works so well is because it can work on that level or again you can watch and go ha, 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 the loud man's pants fell down yeah no and i think i mean yeah like you were said i do think that there's an element where crocker does care about her but i also think it's you know this wonderful and terrible and very honest indictment of him as a character and as a character who is this single personification of the many powers that be that uh caring about her isn't at all enough to stop him from allowing slash encouraging this cycle at all yeah exactly and that's what makes yeah. him a monster yeah oh boy we got dark again didn't we well to <laughs> yeah. carry on in a kind a, of different way and like, very, you know, yeah, we're changing yeah. it up it's a we're still we're still talking about japonica yeah god oh. and so night moves. we're not it's, totally it's, off track it, and night moves which isn't exactly a laugh right but it's, no it's a perfect companion to to inherit yeah you know to, to keep it on japonica's father uh, something that i've also mentioned in, in a couple times in these last two episodes but i think it's important to note here you know something that, that we keep talking about on the show is that idea of inherent vice that 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 which this thing is is what destroys it and how much that is that flows through the film whether it's with with doc and shasta running in the rain and neil young and the first time you watch it like oh what a beautiful scene this is like pta it is most utterly romantic and then when you go back and you watch it no this is the scene showing us the construction foundations of the golden thing it was already here it was always here or the fact that Sorlige even notes like Doc can't look back at this memory with pure happiness because he's always noting she was already one foot out the door at this point mm-hmm. and this idea that and I think that keys into this idea that Pynchon has in the book which is whatever made the 60s feel special at the time the cancer was already had already metastasized the 60s were already doomed before they were the thing we call the 60s the rot was already inherent in it and I feel like there's a there's a is a throwaway line it feels like in the film but if you if you want to if you want to grab onto it if you're the kind of person that would make a 50 episode podcast about this fucking movie 
you might notice these things. And that is that it, it, it's noted that Crocker Fenway, ostensibly the closest thing Inherent Vice has to a primary villain, aside from time itself, he gave Doc his first paying gig. I.e. With a pretty hefty bonus for bringing Japonica home. Oh, look at you. The job that set Doc on his path of being a detective, of being our hero, Crocker's the one that put him on that path. Crocker is the seed from which this, however limited it may be, career grew from as a PI. And I find that so haunting and so thematically resonant with everything that the story is about, that everything is tainted. And not only is it tainted, but the infection set in so long before we even knew there was an infection, that the darkness was always there. It was already there. It was there before we were here. And I don't mean that in a biblical sense. It's the dark was just there. And just as that wonderful postcard memory of Doc and Shasta, as I said in the rain, you know, she was halfway out the door. The dry rot that infected the entire hippie movement had quietly set in before 1970 or even 68 or 1965. But it was part of the American bloodstream since its, since its inception. So too is this man's semi-noble career tainted by the dirty funds of the heavy-duty South Bay money and evil lives of unusual high density and corruption and often incoherence, as our pal Sorta Leach would say, literally, Doc's career was funded by Golden Fang money. And as silly as this can sound, I just that just occurred to me as I said it, that it was actual Golden Fang money that was the seed money that gave Doc his career. And that, that is the most perfect Pinchonian metaphor, I think, in, in the book, is that it was the Golden Fang that paid Doc, and that's how he became a detective. And there is such a, it's a resigned sadness. And again, it's a, it's a throwaway line. It's a throwaway line in the movie. It's, it's there if you want it, but it's not there if you don't need it. If you, if you can get through the movie because it, you, you want a kind of a Lebowski romp, you can ignore that line. But if you want to get heavy, and we're getting heavy, it's right there for you to go, Jesus Christ. Like they even got not, not because he wanted it to be that way, but they even, they even touched doc. They got to doc mm -hmm. and the golden fang itself paid for doc to become a detective. And that's, that's just so haunting and sad to me that uh, I'm going to shut up now and let you talk. I'm going to be sad over here in the corner. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a very, like, I had definitely caught that line, but I don't think I'd ever actually put that like specific, the golden fang is why Doc is a, is Doc. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'd put that together as directly, but yeah, it's sad. Well, I literally, I literally, cycle. as I was talking, I, yeah. I, in a very Doc fashion, it wasn't until I said it that I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, they, they paid for him. They bought him. Yeah. The golden fang bought Doc. They've paid Doc. They've paid him well. They gave him that bonus. And that's so fucking sad that, that he was always in their pocket. And he never knew it. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I think that's also one of the minor miracles of this story is that, you know, I was talking to Ryan Johnson about this in his episode. You know, there's two kind of detective stories. There's the Dashiell Hammett story where mm -hmm. a detective walks in cowboy style and he burns it all down. He burns it all down and reshapes everybody and everything in the story. Uh, into his own view of what justice is but then, there, then there's this the, there's the more Chandler-esque detective who looks around and goes fuck I'm not going to change a goddamn thing because it's not 
it's not possible. I don't have it. I want to, I would, if I could, maybe I can get this one guy or this one girl out of this, but that's, that's about as far as I go. And, you know, talking about what we're, we're talking about, there, there's such a sadness to that, that, that kind of anti Hammett idea of like the doc was bought and sold before we even met him before the film even began. He was not quite golden Fang's boy, but he was an asset. Mm-hmm. With the, he, he was a he was a golden thing asset he was a property he was and in the system whether he liked it or not or whether he knew or not he didn't even know he he just he just thought hey it's you know a big money orange county family looking for a lost kid this is yeah. what this is the job this is what a pi does it's not all you know cracking these these massive existential conspiracies sometimes it's just going and getting a girl out of a bad place not realizing that uh, what does sort of you say? Uh, though he may have rescued Japonica from a life of dark and unspecified hippie horror, apparently restoration to the bosom of a family had been enough to really drive her around the bend. No pun intended, because she's running off. I mean, I wrote that line down. Yeah. Oh boy, you got that. Surprise that you catch a pun, Anna. Surprise, surprise. I'm sorry. I'm really going to crucify you for the rest of the episode. I'm going to hang on to that. Look, that's not even the worst thing I've said today, frankly. Uh, okay. Fair. True. Fair enough. But yeah, uh, Doc as a cog in a larger machine, machine serving its needs without really realizing it, uh, and and how it leaves him here in this out of control car, grabbing at the wheel as Japonica steers it into the dark. But what I love about this movie is every single thing in this movie is a metaphor for what this movie is about, and I think that's also a little bit why it plays tricks on you. We were talking earlier about how, you know, I can't remember the order that things happen. It's because every single scene is doing is accomplishing the same thing in different ways. It's almost hard to, because it's not that every scene is the same, but every scene is really kind of pulling off this same magic trick, you know, of, you know, I said this, you know, this whole Martin Short sequence really is kind of the film in microcosm, just like Japonica is the hippie generation of microcosm. Every scene in this film is doing that. It is thematically reflecting what the overall picture is about. And I don't know if I can think of another film that, that pulls that off as ably or does so in a way that you don't really realize it until you've committed yourself to making a podcast about it, which some of us have done. And then you realize, oh my God, every single fucking second of this movie is, a, is dedicated to what this movie is. There is not an ounce of fat on this two and a half hour film. Yeah. Anyway, that's what that, those are my thoughts on Japonica. Yes. No, I agree. Um, I'm trying to think of, what else I want to talk about, like just that isn't depressing, but also just like you know, it's coming. Is very you know funny. it's coming. It's like sad and it's hilarious at the same time. Just you know, great line deliveries here when the police pull up and she just goes, "Are you the great beast?" No, <laughs> I laugh out loud at that every time. I don't know if I laugh harder at that or the incredibly terrified chuckle of Martin Short. Like, no, that's a policeman, honey. He's our, like he's our friend. He's our. <laughs> uh, I, I, I will also agree that some of the m- maybe more great lines per capita of Inherent mm-hmm. Vice exist in this sequence than any other it, because they just come at you rat-a-tat-tat machine gun style, whether it's uh, – there is, there is such a thing in this world as perfection, and that happens when uh, – it, it actually happens in this moment when Japonica Fenway – scrunches her face at the police officer who says you know your headlights were out and says but i can see in the dark 
with such confusion as to why would you even mention that my lights are out? How? Yeah. Or uh, another another one. Now that we're just we're we're descending into just you know what's funny, uh, but you know what's funny is uh, I my favorite short moment in the film is uh, when Short goes from doing his high pitched freaking out to he just drops to this very deep register and he's like okay my, my, my heart is just beating like a balloon here like he just he looks at them with nothing but pure insane terror mm-hmm. that all the kind of which only martin short can make funny which and this has been mentioned in previous episodes shout out to the casting of this film the only way a character like rudy blatnoid works the only way you can even halfway believe it, even if he's a comic figure, is if is if Martin Short plays it because we know yeah, Martin really. Short and we know his shtick. And, I, and again, that's another thing. I don't mean it's pejorative, but because we know that Martin Short can be that way, we trust, we believe his version of Rudy Blatnoid. But I also think it's important that you have someone like that. And I think that that's something that the film understands is that this has to all be funny. Mm-hmm. Because you can't just have a two and a half hour movie, or I guess you can. It's and it's called irreversible. But you can't. I was gonna say you can't have a two and a half hour movie that screams at you. Time destroys everything, which is literally what flashes across the screen. Oh in yeah. Irreversible. But you can't have You're a great movie. lighthearted comedy irreversible. <laughs> it's funny. I was like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna keep it light on the second half of this episode, and now we're talking about irreversible. But so how about Pol Pot? Let's talk about dictators for a while. As I said, you can't have a movie that just screams in your face for two and a half hours that time is going to destroy absolutely everything. And so you got you to put some ha-has and hee-hees in there. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's actually, I actually think that this, the film would have stopped dead to a halt and tripped over itself in this Japonica Finway sequence. If it weren't as funny as it, as it is, because, and it's not that we should make light of the story of someone like Japonica, because obviously what what has happened to her is quite horrifying but there's no way to put this in the movie without stopping the movie dead and just and and in in a film where we already have a sequence that has to do that uh related to the romance of doc and shasta mm-hmm. there's only so many times we can really hit the brakes like that it's not yeah. a car pun this is not a car pun and I think it's important. You have to have that kind of seasoning in this. You have to have, you have to have a moment where, or I, I think that you can only have this Japonica sequence in the, the one moment in the film where it totally careens out of control, out of into mm-hmm. total just like, coke blind madness. Otherwise, it's too depressing to deal with. It's absolutely too depressing yeah. to deal with. And as yeah. two people who are very depressed tonight, I think we can both agree, like. We need, we need a laugh right now. We, we yeah. need something funny right now. And that's yeah. and that's I why I... shut up. Oh, go ahead. No. Shout out. Interrupt no, I just, me. Go I ahead. My... I'm sorry. I, just, I gotta say my favorite Dina's line. It's a Mercedes. It's only painted one color. <laughs> one color? Should it's count for something. <laughs> it's such a good line. Like, that, to me, is one of the funniest moments of the scene. It's genius. One of the t- more twisted parts of my psychology are the things that I get mad about crowds not laughing at when I see this in a theater. And of course, the biggest one, obviously, is something Spanish, which nobody laughs at. And it breaks my heart because I'm sitting there like Max Cady 
in uh, 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 <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm sitting there with my cigar, laughing at problem child, and everyone else is kind of looks at it. Like, oh, that's funny. No one ever laughs at Dennis, and that breaks my heart a little bit. Dennis rhymes with penis, as they say in the book. Nobody laughs at his jokes, and there is such a low key madness and spaciness to his character, mm-hmm. and the the plaintive eight year old little boy way that he goes, dude. Some Mercedes. It's only it's only painted one color. I mean that'll account for something. Like that should yeah. tell you that we're straight, right? And and that like the way that he says it is the sort of the like why are you bothering us? Same <laughs> way that Japonica says I can see in the but dark. See in the dark. It's also great because it's like the closest this, that Dinas comes to having any kind of discernible emotion whatsoever in the film. In the film, is the mild frustration that he has. Uh, you know, the rest of the film, he's so stoned and affable. But this this little moment of, like, and of course, it's directed at a deserving target, the LAPD. But yeah, it, it's a line no one ever lasted. And it, may, it warms my heart. It warms my heart. You've won me back, Anna. You've won me back by pointing out this wonderful Dennis moment. Because the, the, that boy doesn't get to shine near enough in this film. Yeah, it's wonderful. Do we want to do it? Do we want to talk about the LAPD? You can start. <laughs> you live in LA. I feel like I this do. Is... I do. I'm sick of fucking talking about them. Yeah. Um. You know, I will mention something, and we'll keep it more about the 1960s. Uh, there's, there's been something that's been passed around on uh, the, the hellscape of Twitter the last couple of days, and it's an interview with Nixon's domestic policy advisor john ehrlichman not a good guy and he it's from a 1994 interview in which he was talking about why nixon really pushed the war on drugs and why he was so insistent on the war on drugs when there there was already no shortage of problems to be dealt with in america at the time including a war an overseas war and including race riots and revolution you know, why focus on drugs right now? And Ehrlichman, uh, in this 1994 interview, said that the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? This is him. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both of those heavily, we could disrupt those communities. And I don't really know where I want to go with that other than that I find that incredibly sad and incredibly terrifying and incredibly real but it is also something that i think about when i watch this scene and see an lapd comfortable with disrupting the hippies because to them they're not people they are avatars of the drug movement and and even more so 
they're able to tie it to the Manson, what they saw as a Manson movement at the time. You know, any gathering of three or more civilians is now considered a possible cult. Criteria includes reference to the book of Revelation, males with shoulder length hair or longer, and endangerment through inattentive driving, all of which you have been displaying tonight. But it, that that quote from Ehrlichman that I saw pinballing around Twitter this week amidst every other horror that is also pinballing across Twitter at any given time, it made me think very much about this sequence and about uh, how terrifying, how, how, how dehumanizing it made, how dehumanizing it was, and how it dehumanized these hippies in the car. It just made, that's what it made, it made them hippies. They weren't people, mm-hmm. they were hippies. They were hippies the way Rick Dalton would see hippies. You know I had to throw Rick in there just for a second, just to, just to cheer us up. Yeah, but, goddamn hippies. <laughs> but how it allowed this cop to see these people in the car, not as people, but they were purveyors of this thing that's been criminalized that's made them the enemy the way by attaching uh, black culture to heroin in law enforcement's eyes in the in the late 60s you you were because like you said you weren't we weren't able to criminalize you for being black we couldn't criminalize you for being a hippie but if we could associate these people with those criminalized things then they were criminals before they even did anything if they were going to do anything many of whom weren't and that's exactly why this cop approaches the car with his gun pointed at everyone inside, just like it happened to Deadweiler. It allows, it allows these people in positions of authority to dehumanize you and to see you as the thing that had been criminalized and not as a person. And I think that that's very, it's a very pregnant theme in this sequence, but it's also obviously something that we're going through right now. And of course, you can't not point out that the difference between the subject matter of the Thomas Pinchon essay that we led this episode off with and the characters in this story, the difference is these characters are white. And that is why in this scene, there is a very distinct hard cut that cleaves right through the middle. And it goes from them clearly stoned, passing around their IDs and confused uh, to this nervous cop who has his service revolver drawn and pointed at Japonica Finway's head. There was a hard cut, and all of a sudden, the, do- the, the cop is very affable, like, all right, as long as there's no wants and warrants, Mr. Sportello, you're all free to go. You guys have a good night. Be safe out mm-hmm. there. And the cop walks away smiling because this carload of people is white, and they get, that, they, get, they get a pass, even if they are attached to a criminalized movement in this officer's mind. Yeah, And so... This is, I think, kind of what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode where we were both like, I don't want to talk about this scene last week. I don't want to talk about this scene. I don't want to do this. Is It's hard to see this moment and not, not think about what would have happened if all of these characters had been black. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's just, it's just impossible not to think that now when you watch this sequence. And it's also impossible not to feel equally queasy with i mean we it's not that we want our characters to get away but it's hard not to watch it and feel equally queasy at how easily they do just all right you guys have a good night you seem like you're all right you know mm-hmm. i thought you were maybe mansonoid killers for a second there but you know you're good we're good and the cop walks off with a smile mm-hmm. and certainly the LAPD is a haunting force and a dark force in this film. They conspired to have Bigfoot's partner killed 
with uh, the Golden Fang. Uh, they, they beat the shit out of Doc, even if it's kind of in a Three Stooges funny way. But never had this scene felt as dis- felt disturbing to me in any capacity beyond Japonica's exploitation. Mm-hmm. Never did it feel as disturbing to me as it did watching it this week and going, Jesus Christ, uh, if any of these, what, did it, what would have happened if Japonica had been a black woman driving or if Doc had been yeah. a black detective, if he had been uh, uh, Easy Rollins from Devil in a Blue Dress instead of Doc, Doc Sportello and Inherent Vice, how would this have ended? And it's, you know, again, part of my privilege is that it, I only felt that way this time mm-hmm. watching the film. But I, again, I think that that is, it's a disturbing layer of meaning that this scene takes on. And that disturbing layer of meaning that is, that is doubled by that Ehrlichman line about how we can't criminalize the people for being these people, but we can, we can criminalize this other thing and we can attach it to them. So you'll never see them as human again, mm-hmm. which is what was going on in 1970. And I feel like it's exactly what we're watching on CNN and MSNBC. Well, that's not happening if you're watching Fox News. But if you're watching any other network right now, it's exactly what you're seeing is the criminalization of for, for, being, for being not white mm-hmm. and for, for, not, for, for believing a certain thing. The way we are literally, <laughs> the, the, the day this is recorded was the day that the president of the United States said that a 75-year-old man, man who got pushed down by the police, oh boy, the faces Anne is making right now, that a 75-year-old man who was standing up for something he believed in got his head cracked open. And we have a president going, well, uh, you, could, could, could he be a subversive? Could he be a uh, provocateur? Maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Which is a far clumsier and stupider version of what Ehrlichman was talking about, which is we can't criminalize this man for being this man. But if we can make you believe that everything about him, everything associated with him is, is a criminal act, then we've got you. And then you'll never look at him as a person again. Yeah. And that is, I feel like everywhere we look, that is, it's, not, it's, it's like we said at the beginning of this episode, uh, it's not that this film was prophetic. It's just that nothing has been, nothing has changed since then. Yeah. No, and I think that that's exactly what's happening now with, you know, even just like the way that people talk about it as like, oh, you know, I don't have a problem with protesting. I have a problem with the looting. It's the looters that are the problem here. And it's it's just, it's very thinly veiled. Um, It's not the police, it's not the police state killing of innocent citizens that bothers them, but it is, God damn it. Target has to pay for those windows. Starbucks has got to pay for those windows. And that's Someone and that's think of the windows. And, it, and that's what it comes down to. It's it's it's, it's the property. It's mm-hmm. the property. And it, which which uh, again, we got to loop it back. If Crocker Fenway were here right now, that would that would be the thing that he's worried about. Is yeah. you remember? Oh uh, my God! When he he's not mad that Rudy Blatnoid was raping his daughter, but it was that he took her to the hotels where he played a tasteless sh- decor and the lamps. The lamps. lamps. That's what he cared about. He cared about the property. He cared about the way it looked, not the way it was. Mm-hmm. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, if that isn't 2020 right now. Yeah. I also, um, what you were saying got me thinking, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Doc also flashes his PI license to the cop that pulls them over. Does that happen? or? You know, I have to be honest with you. I don't think that that happens in this. Okay. I don't, I, or I, yeah, I don't think it does. I actually, okay. for some reason, I thought it did. 
and it's kind of an interest you know i could be wrong this is going to be one of those embarrassing moments because i there should be literally nothing about this movie at this point i don't remember look but neither I, of yeah. us know for sure but so. uh nicole, well don't worry some asshole on twitter will chime in he'll let us <laughs> know for sure uh and it will be a him uh but i i don't think that he does i don't think he okay. flashes a pi uh okay here um why were you going somewhere with that no i was i was just curious if he did i couldn't really remember i was wondering if that was like you know part of it and like if like being a pi sort of he's not a cop but he's he has this sort of like chummy relationship with bigfoot and i mean just what you were talking about the fact that you know everyone in the car is white and they do kind of get away with what they are doing and um again, kind of tying into that idea of Doc being funded at the start by the Golden Fang and, and having this bit of complicity that uh, he's not always aware of, but that is there in a sense, or maybe not complicity, but this uh, involvement that extends beyond his own knowledge. Well, he benefits, I mean, certainly he benefits from being who he is and the way yeah. the system is set up, even though he's at the bottom of that benefit structure by being a hippie yeah by being along here uh he he does certainly benefit from it and that is something else that's something that you can't not see uh when you watch this film is how and again complicit is a hard i, I yeah it's not compl- there's no there's not like the right word but it's 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 a more complicated level of involvement than just like him versus the bad corporate entity exactly and that's and again that's what makes the film so real and so human to me is that there is and that, and it's again it's why you can almost i won't i won't feel sorry for the cops in this film no but it's why you're able to empathize with at least one of the cops in this film because i will never not be able to look at bigfoot and not feel sad for bigfoot even if mm-hmm. i think he is a kind of a loathsome character because he tries to do good things in the worst fucking possible way. You know, he doesn't, you know, that doesn't do the justifiable, justifiable Charles Bronson thing where he finds out Vincent and Delicato, his partner, potential lover, uh, banana stand in has been killed. He, when he doesn't show up like Bronson style with machine guns in either hand, chewing on a stogie, killing everyone involved he doesn't wreak this righteous havoc he doesn't go full serpico and make a report he just outsources it to a guy who you know if he lives or dies no one has no one's really gonna bat an eye at that Mm -hmm. and he doesn't turn against the system and and or at the end of the film he doesn't take on the golden fang directly he just quietly rips off some heroin because he knows doc can leverage it to get koi out he won't get koi out directly there's a nobility in him wanting to try Mm-hmm. But he does it in the most loathsome, cowardly way possible. Yeah. And it's that it's it's the same with, with, with Bigfoot that it is with Doc, which is it's an acknowledgement of some level of complicity or participation. It's just that Doc's is so much more oblique and so much more without nefarious intent. He doesn't use it as a shield to protect it to, to, to cower behind the way Bigfoot cowers behind it. And that's ultimately what makes Bigfoot a cop is that he hides behind that. And it's that complicity of Bigfoot's and that's what makes him a cop, which yeah. no one should be. Don't be a cop. Yeah. Anybody listening at home, you kids out there, you eight, nine and 10 year olds who are tuning in to Increment Vice, your favorite after school show, don't be a cop. 
Don't be Bigfoot. Be be a doc. If yeah. we're all gonna, if we're all gonna be touched by this darkness, if we're all gonna be a little tainted. Be doc tainted. Don't be Bigfoot tainted. Don't be a cop. Yeah. Nobody. Be. I also just think like I feel like anyone who's liked ever liked this movie has like a moral imperative to support releasing prisoners who are in jail for marijuana related offenses. Like I feel oh like that God, should just be like the standard level of you know humanity that we have and unfortunately the bar is that low but yeah don't be a cop don't put people <laughs> in prison for marijuana like the bar this, is this that shouldn't low, right? be the bar but it is it, but you know yeah i don't it's a start it's something yeah it's a start it's a look yeah. at the light and the fog i guess yeah no and i and i do agree i think bigfoot is like he's i don't know if i can call him a likable character but there's something so interesting about him that like you can't just Bro- shake. Um, Brolin, Brolin's likable. Brolin's yeah. likable. Yeah, that's, that's what, it. That's what makes, it's again, it's what makes, it's, it's the same as Martin Short. It's what makes you able to look at this character for as long as we do and not retch in disgust mm-hmm. is because it's funny and because the person doing the funny things, you can't help but you you like him. You want to watch him, or at least I do. I love, I love Brolin. Yeah. And, oh, and he's so good in this. And well, I've said it before. Yes, Joaquin Phoenix is obviously one of the most interesting and intense performers of this or any of his or of, or any other generation. Catherine Waterston, with scant minutes of screen time, does so much, does so much, and haunts us so deeply. And yet, I will say, I don't think anyone in this film commits the way Josh Brolin commits to this mm-hmm. character and not just because he deep throats a banana in a way we've never quite seen before or at least i haven't it's the it is the way in which he knows this man through and through he knows this type of fascism through and through he knows this type of just crew cut lantern jawed hatefulness mm-hmm. and smallness and Again, it's because he knows that that he, I think it allows us, it's the reason why we're able to be empathetic with him because we're empathetic with him before we find out around the hour and 50 minute mark that someone killed his partner. We, we feel, we, we just like him. And I think it's because that's, that's all Brolin. That's not the writing because when you read, I don't know, I, I, you know, I've never asked you if you've read the book Inherent Vice. But, uh, I don't know if I should admit this to you. Uh, I started reading it and then didn't continue uh, with it. Um, I, I've been meaning to go back. It, it was mostly just that I was reading it while in school and I think I just was like overwhelmed with other readings that I didn't keep up with it. And then I just like meant to go back and I do still want to, but I also, <clears throat> I started reading it just after the movie came out and I think that I had such a strong attachment to the film that the book, which is different, wasn't doing it for me in the same sure. way. So I do want to go back and read it, fully well, I w- all of it. Ah, well, for now, it is going to be your public shame. I'm sorry. Yeah, I deserve that. (laughs) Poor Anna. I'm being so mean to you. I'm sorry. No, I'm a a pun-loving illiterate, so I deserve that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say that, you know, I think a very, one of the most obvious differences between the film and the book is that in the book, Bigfoot is such a colder, I think, much more loathsome character but he's not entirely he's not really written all that differently i think the difference again is and and god help me i i i know he's he doesn't appear in this scene at all but i i can never not talk roland 
it's because it's Brolin brings something to this character that wasn't there. And in fact, uh, he's even said in interviews and PTA has corroborated this, that in the script, he was actually very one note, kind of intentionally one note, like a very black and white 1950s dragnet character. And Brolin really insisted on bringing the weirdness and the humanity to this character. And I think that was a very, very smart choice because cop though he may be part of the system and the problem that he certainly is i think it's important that we are allowed and able to see that bigfoot is a disgusting human being but he's a human being and that he is Mm -hmm. just as trapped and caught in that cycle of hate that that pinchon mentioned in that essay where neither one of us want to be here i don't i don't want to be the person in the car Deadweiler didn't want to be the person in the car. We don't want to be the people protesting in the street. We don't want those things, but we are. We hate you, and we don't want to be in the position to have to hate you, but you've put yourself in that position because you picked up a gun. And, and that idea of all of us being trapped in that rat maze of a cycle while the Crocker Fenways of the world just kind of look over the edge and watch us spin and spin and spin and eat and eat and eat. It's just like... A, you know that delete there's a deleted scene of from when doc and when doc and bigfoot meet for pancakes in the in the next scene and bigfoot talks about how modern american life in this deleted scene from the book it's like a pool of piranha and someone just starts dumping blood into the water and we it, it gets to a fever pitch where we just start to eat ourselves and that's yeah that's where we are right now. That's our that's our happy. That's our that's our next depressing moment. You and I is acknowledging that that's that's the cycle we're caught in, and that's the yeah. cycle these characters are caught in: hippie versus cop, protester versus cop. No one wants to be in this pool eating each other, but that's that's where we find each other yeah. in 1970 and 2020. Yeah. No, I agree, and I think you can like I think there's definitely you can sympathize with Bigfoot being caught in a cycle that he else that he doesn't totally want to be in, and also understand that most of what keeps him in that cycle is cowardice. Exactly. Exactly what I was going to say is that, yeah, yeah he, you get the sense that he, I mean, it's clearly he's a deeply unhappy man. And I'm not saying, and by the way, I'm not saying this is a tragedy that applies to every cop in America, that there are all these tragic figures that they could leave, that would leave it, but if only they could. Um, but that there is something that it, it, it all comes down ultimately to that. Exactly. It's cowardice to know, that you are a part of something wrong and you are wholly unwilling to leave that thing because it's what you know. It's, mm-hmm. and I, again, I think that that is something that again makes Doc a more honorable person is that in the end, when he really, for instance, say we were talking about how he, his entire career, his, his PI business was funded by the golden thing. Once he realizes that fact, once he realizes who Crocker Finway is and what Finway's involved in, I love Doc for the fact that at the end of the book, when he confront or the film, when he confronts uh, Crocker again, he refuses to take the man's money. Uh, mm-hmm. He just he absolutely refuses. He won't be touched by that any further. He's only willing to make any kind of deal with Fenway because he wants to put one family back together. And I think again, that's the difference between a cowardly cop like Bigfoot and a semi-noble PI like Doc. Is Doc's not going to take a paycheck? Yeah. And he's not going to be part of the system. Even if he's able, even if he's doing something good, he's not going to be that guy that says, well, I'll be a part of the system to do something good. He's still only going to work outside of it. Driving 
you're here. Kind of a pun, or maybe maybe more of a metaphor. Careening and driving in the ditches and the margins with people like Japonica and Dinas and Vladnoid because he has to, but refusing to be a part of Finway's system, refusing to be a part of Bigfoot's system because he knows that it is inherently wrong. And so he's not going to take a check for what he does. He's just going to do it while Bigfoot will, you know, Bigfoot will will hang in there until he gets a retirement and a pension. And then he'll just walk away, you know, a broken human being. Yeah. Doc not my Doc may not be a good a do gooder, but he's done good. He's done good. He's oh, done good. Boy, I'm glad you said that because now I can have a happy cry at the end of this episode and not just wallow in misery like we were doing earlier. Yeah. Anna. Can I say I'm shocked we've talked about so much inherent vice and, and really not, not once upon a time in Hollywood time at all? In Hollywood. You know, I was sitting here thinking, I was like, you know, it's about time to wrap this sucker up. And you know what? I've only mentioned Rick Dalton once, Cliff. Cliff and Brandy, maybe twice, maybe three times at most. What a movie that is. I'm sorry, everyone, for hearing this, but there is a shared madness, a shared madness between Anna and I, and that is that I think we would both take a bullet for this film. I think we would die for this for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and that's obviously not the podcast we're on right now, but God bless that movie. That was the last good thing that happened to humanity was the summer that we all came together and watched that wonderful film and it just uh it all kind of went to hell after that didn't it yeah yeah it all kind of went to hell great movie great movie you want to hang out for another two hours talk about that uh yes absolutely (laughs) i'll hang out for five hours we could watch the movie and then talk about it you know it would be kind of a butt number uh but once upon a time inherent vice now that's a double feature flowing from 69 into 70. Mm. of course it's not it's not a shared universe manson got his way in inherent vice which is why that movie is so goddamn sad all right. Okay. Yeah. We'll start. Okay. Well, let's start then from the top. Once upon a time in Hollywood opening scene. My favorite moments. Starting with, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not going to do that to the rest of you. Uh, Anna and I are going to do that as soon as we stop. What would recording. What would be the podcast name of the like every scene? Once upon a time in Hollywood. Oh God. You know what? For that, we'd have to bring Blake in. Blake is mm. the guy with his. You, yeah. If you are a pun loving illiterate, Blake is has got like this weird form of Tourette's but the only symptom is that he just fires off cheeky podcast names with within seconds within seconds so uh and if i know and if i know my man i guarantee you he's got about 15 really solid once upon a time in hollywood podcast titles already ready to go just waiting just waiting in the wings but uh what would be a good one i don't know one minute in Hollywood. Once, once upon a minute in Hollywood. One scene upon a time in Hollywood. Oh boy, but that's kind of a mouthful. Once, well, one scene upon. Yeah, it works. Hey, why not? Why not? Eh. Why not? Did I tell you about uh, one of the podcast ideas I have waiting in the wings? Oh my god, do it. Um, best in Showgirls, where each guest argues for who they think gave the best performance in Showgirls. Because <laughs> the, the thing answer, is, well, I have it. You go ahead. You go ahead. No, I was gonna say like. I have my answer, but I think there are a lot of cases that can be made. Well, what's yours? Or is that you guys say? Gershon. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. yeah. Obviously. Uh, but like, yeah. I'd love to hear anyone else's case. Who do you think? Mm, you know, I got to give it to my man, Kyle McLaughlin. I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why you gotta save it for the podcast episode okay well be my guest on the kyle episode (laughs) it relates to the pool sequence 
and um, and not everybody not everybody could make you even for a second believe that human beings are doing certain things in that movie and kyle mclaughlin he makes you at least kind of entertain the idea well, i'm sure some human has done this like this and so yeah okay so that would be my brief answer oh that's a good that's fair enough rules. uh you better copyright that pretty quick there's some real jackals <laughs> out there listening to this thing yeah. they're probably ready to roll uh with their new show on that note i am so glad that we managed to end this episode talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Showgirls. This is a very different ending than I was expecting, and I was having a few stiff drinks to prepare myself. And now here we are talking about Kyle MacLachlan flopping like a fish at the uh, in the pool sequence of Showgirls. That has made my night. That has made my night. All right. I'm very glad. As we wind up, as it's a we good wind note up. to end on. <laughs> it's a, you, you, you can do far worse than yeah. a triple feature of Inherent Vice, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Showgirls. You really, chef's kiss, exactly. Yes. Before we go, do me a favor. Do everyone mm-hmm. listening a favor. Tell them where they can find your work. Uh, you can find me pretty regularly at Film School Rejects, um, sometimes at Cinemascope or Little White Lies or The Globe and Mail, um, but usually at Film School Rejects writing articles about Brad Pitt. Um, currently working on some pretty interesting James Bond stuff, so that's going to be rolling out this summer. Uh, I am normally on Twitter, but I'm taking a break for my own mental health because it's a lot. Uh, but yeah, that place is on the internet. And I'm so sorry that right as you began taking a break on Twitter, I had you come on a podcast and talk about everything that people are talking about on Twitter. Yeah. Such is such is my sickness, and I I thank you for mm-hmm. indulging it. Anna, thank you so much for coming on tonight, and for giving me so many new things to look for now. The next time I watch the movie, I'm gonna see that when Shasta's narrating at the beginning. I'm gonna see that when uh, Doc has uh, got the light over his shoulder at the end. Of course, this sequence has been ruined by the puns, but other than that, I'm very excited about taking what we've talked about today into my next viewing of Inherent So two out of three. Two out of three, not bad. I made two scenes better and I ruined one. Not bad, I break even, basically. Break even, not bad. Not bad, and hey, you know what? You know what? You know what? Going into this thing, I was really thinking that you and I were going to be walking out of here with the Charlie Brown Christmas theme playing over our heads. Super fucking sad, but you ended it with Showgirls. Didn't see that coming. That was a left hook that I appreciate and I thank you for. And yeah, you did good. You did good. And so I thank you so much for coming on tonight. For thank indul- you for having me. Indulging in this obsession of mine and for peppering it with just enough of uh, Cliff Booth and Brandy and Rick Dalton to make me happy. And I thank you. I thank everybody for listening. And tune in next time where myself and a very special guest are finally, finally going to have the pancakes. Both of you are caught in something neither of you wants. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. If what Thomas P. wrote in 1965 doesn't still ring true in 2020. Because what was true then is sadly still true now. Because the more things change, somehow, the more they stay the same. Or maybe not. Maybe Anna's right. And the reckoning of 2020 will finally lead to something different. And so we wait in the dog days of this impossible summer. Pulled over on the side of the road. Waiting for whatever will happen. For the American fate to mercifully not transpire for a forgotten joint to materialize in our pocket.
or the LAPD to come by and choose not to hassle us, for a restless blonde in a stingray to stop and offer us a ride, for the fog to burn off, and for something else this time, somehow, to be there instead. We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.